For this Napping Wizard session, I'm returning to my first episode of Premise, which I titled A Bold Move with the Cowardly Lion. So I did over nine interviews to make that episode, and I had something like 20 hours of tape. The piece I did was fun to make, and I think it gets across the complexities involved in the premise I presented. And if you haven't listened to it yet, you can find it in my past shows. So one of the interviews I did was with Adrian Whiteley, who was a zookeeper at the Roseman Gifford Zoo in Syracuse, New York. Adrian's experience and point of view and her passion for animals made it hard for me to leave our conversation quietly in the archive. So here I treat it like my other interviews on the show and give it exclusive space. We had this conversation in June of 2018, and I edited out most of the lion in the elementary school bits and instead focused on Adrian's perspective on the zoo experience and the state of zoos and animal welfare in the American context. Adrian Whiteley. I am a former zookeeper, zoo manager at the Roseman Gifford Zoo in Syracuse, New York. I worked there for 41 years. You worked with all the animals? I worked with almost all of the animals. I worked primarily with mammals, primates, otters, penguins, lions, things like that. And you did that for 41 years. How did that become a career choice? Kind of by default. I was in college. I got a summer job there. I lost my funding for college and got a permanent job there and just never left. I went to school for music. I was a voice major. So they were happy with what you were doing at the zoo and just gave you a job? Yes, it was a long time ago and it was easier to get jobs at the zoo. Right now it's really pretty difficult. You need a college degree, you need internship, you need animal care experience. Uh, Then typically you get a part-time job or a temporary job. And if you're good and you're lucky, you get a permanent job. And what was it that drew you to that job in the first place? I don't want to say I was an animal lover because that has a different connotation. I was always drawn to animals. I always had animals as a kid, you know, primarily dogs. And I trained dogs, and I also worked on a horse farm when I was a teenager and really loved horses. So I did have some experience, and it just worked out really well for me. I was very fortunate. I did have an affinity for the work, and people recognized that and wanted to keep me. The zoo here closed for a complete renovation in 1983, so the zoo was closed down and most people lost their jobs, but I got to stay. We kept a small collection of animals and took them to schools and still did work with animals while things were being built around us. Uh, We brought a whole group of sloths in, in 1983 while the zoo was closed. And so I got to spend lots of time with them and learned a lot about sloths. We've written a lot of papers about sloths, and there's still a large group of them at the zoo. Could you talk about what the value was of bringing the animals to schools? So we had a small collection that we used as outreach animals 
most zoos do that, have traveling collections of animals. You have to pick the animals very carefully, animals that will adapt to being handled by a zoo person. At our zoo, we don't let other people handle the animals. We had things like skunks and rabbits and a variety of reptiles and some birds. So we would take them and be arranged through the schools, then have a program that you had what you wanted to talk about, animal adaptations or evolution or flight. In animals and kids are a good combination. Generally, kids are very open to learning and they want to know. And if you have something that is a visual for them as well, it tends to stick. I think that education in zoos are really important. What zoos do is really important. What good zoos do, I should say. And kids are just like little sponges, so you can tell them a lot and they remember a lot, even when they don't think they're remembering it. And how did you like educating? I liked doing that work. I didn't really consider myself an educator at first, but it made that connection pretty quickly. And education is a big component of what zookeepers do. For the last 11 years, I've also taught a course at Syracuse University to the honors program, a seminar course on the challenges of modern zoo management. I co-teach with the zoo's director. It's an extremely popular course. There's always a wait list, and we do bring animals to class sometimes. Each seminar is a different topic. I find I really like to educate. I didn't know that I wanted to do that, but it's become a big part of what I've done with my life. Yeah, it sounds like you didn't know you wanted to work at a zoo either. I I kind of just fall into what I do. It's not part of any grand plan. I don't know. I've been really lucky. And with zoos in general, you said education was a big part of it. What would you consider the main purposes of zoos? For me, the main reason for having zoos and continuing zoos is for the conservation of animals and zoos play a huge role in that. A lot of people don't know because we don't talk about it enough. We have to talk about it more. And education. So those two things are primary. Of course, you have a collection of animals and it is of the utmost importance to take good care of them and do the best that you can for them every single day of their lives because they don't have a lot of choices about their existence. Most animals that live in zoos have only ever lived in zoos, so as far as they know, it's what their life is, and I don't know that they have a particular yearning to go do something else because they don't know what the something else is, but it's important to give them choices when you can, so we do a lot of training, do a lot of enrichment of animals so that they have things to do and they're not just hanging out being bored because, of course, in their natural environment, they would have a lot to do primarily just to feed themselves. So for me, conservation, what we do to maintain the genetic diversity of the populations. Larger zoos have a lot of money. They fund conservation projects in zoos and in the wild. And we have a big audience. You can teach them a lot, even if you just reach one person that is excited in a day. You know, that person goes out and talks about what they learned. And I think that it makes a difference. And do you think the animals are also being educated? I think a lot of the training things that we do with animals, they're learning, and sometimes they're really excited about learning a whole variety of things. And many zoos do this now, have animals paint. 
there's some that they're not actually painting. They're walking through paint and walking on a canvas, and it makes a painting that people are interested in. But some of them actually paint uh-huh. and like to paint. It started many years ago at Syracuse with an elephant named Siri who would pick up stones and draw on the ground. And her keeper at the time found that fascinating and made up a little carpenter's pencil that had lead on both sides and she would pick it up in her trunk and he brought in paper and sat with her and she would make drawings. If she was in a bad mood, she would throw the pencil at the thing and walk away. And if she was in a good mood, she'd spend a lot of time He ended up making a book out of that. He and a a gentleman that worked for the newspaper here in Syracuse wrote a book. The basis of the book was going around to famous artists and showing them this portfolio and not saying who did the work and asking them to critique the work and then they would tell them that it was an elephant. And on the back dust jacket of the book, the quote is, that's a damn talented elephant, which was Willem de Kooning. And other zoos do that as well. I don't know if Syracuse was the first one. It was the first one I ever knew of that did that. Siri is still at the zoo. She still paints. And uh, some of the other elephants paint. And it's very interesting with elephants because they do it because they want to do it. They don't have to. They come over and if they want to paint, they do. You can actually tell their paintings apart. They have different styles. It's not hard for me to say which painting Ramani did and which one Siri did. Yeah, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about Komar and Melimud, these Russian artists, they had a painting school for elephants, a photography school for chimpanzees, and I think they had an architecture school for beavers. Really? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Yeah. I like that. And so it's interesting. Did you get a sense that the more they drew, the more they, I don't know if learned is the right word. I think Siri is the one that I'm the most familiar with. She used to do it on her own with found objects and making scratches in the concrete. She would do something on the canvas and back up because, you know, they have these huge heads and she would back up and look at it and then go forward and do something else. And I think that elephants in particular enjoy it. There are some primates at the zoo that paint and they seem to like it, but it's a little harder where we are set up because you can't actually just give them the stuff. So you have to be outside the enclosure and rig up a brush that they can move, but they can't take so that they don't do something they shouldn't be doing with it. It's an interesting thing to see. People are fascinated by those. There's an animal art auction at the zoo every year. Art Gone Wild is what it's called, and it's put on by the chapter of the American Association of Zookeepers, and then keep the funds and use them for conservation projects. And how are the lions as artists or entertainers? Or um. <laughs> And I guess the other part of the question is, you said conservation and education. I wonder if entertainment, does that play any role in the zoo's function? Well, certainly I think people are entertained when they come to the zoo. I think the idea of wanting to see the animals do something stupid as entertainment is thankfully going away. But I do think that there is an entertainment factor. For me, it's not the primary factor. It's a byproduct. But there are people that come there and they want to see an animal running around. And part of the training that we do is on public view so people can see animals learning. And I think that they find that very interesting. So the lions are trained to do a variety of things that we do for husbandry. So we can see all parts of their bodies. They're trained to put their feet up on the front of the enclosure, open their mouths so you can check their teeth, lay down, go into an area where 
they can't move from side to side very much so they can get their vaccines that way. You don't have to use a dart gun. You can also give them anesthetic drugs without having to do something more difficult than just giving them a shot. Um, penguins are trained to jump on a scale so we can weigh them and keep track of their weights. You know, you don't really think of wild animals as being something that I'm going to go train this animal to do this. And most of the training is getting them to cooperate in their care. So you can train a gorilla to put their arm in a blood pressure cough. Gorillas in captivity and in the wild have heart problems. They are at a lot of zoos trained to have ultrasounds done where they're just standing and waiting and let an ultrasound probe be put against their heart and it's really interesting what you can get them to voluntarily do. So you're not getting the animal to perform for the audience, you're really getting the animal to perform so that you can help the animal better or learn something. And by making that a public event, that becomes educational. Yeah, and people are fascinated by it because it's an element that most people don't know. You know, there's only so much accommodation that you can make to do training in front of people. Uh, you get to answer a lot of questions about how you did that and the steps you took to get an animal to cooperate. And just in terms of other uses of animals for entertainment, for movies, for music videos, for theater productions, circuses, like you said earlier, is becoming a thing of the past. Do you have any general positions about that? Yeah, I would say in general I'm not a fan. I think that animals that are in those kinds of situations and being used to do something very specifically, the training technique is different. It is not always a cooperative effort. Sometimes it's a forced effort to get them to do something and put them in an environment that they would not be in, would not choose to be in, and, and oftentimes are not comfortable in. Animals that are used in that way generally have been habituated to people at a very young age, so they have been taken oftentimes away from their mother younger than they should have or would have been, and their lives become different because of that. They become attached to humans in a way that is not necessarily good for their psyches and can often become much more dangerous than they would have been otherwise because that natural barrier that most wild animals have that keep them from too much contact with people is broken and sometimes in ways that end up being very unhealthy for humans and for the animals as well. In the same way you were talking about the elephants, with movies and TV and stuff like that, could you say that animals enjoy the work? I guess it's possible. I think it all depends on the situation. I think it's possible. Little animals are goofy, and if what you're capturing is just them playing, then yes, I think that's possible. I've never made a film, but I know that they can be long and arduous for people, and I imagine it's even more so for animals, you know, doing things over and over and over again, and whether you want to or not, so the people have the choice in that, and the animals really don't. Typically, they're not going back home to a big, luxurious field or place. They're being kept in smaller places, and, you know, it's their job to perform. 
in terms of the lions you worked with, could you just talk about your relationship with them and their personalities and just, I mean, what's it like to build a relationship with a lion? I love lions. They have a special place in my heart. I've been fortunate to know a number of lions. They have always been at the zoo except for those three years when we were rebuilding. They have a way of looking at you that goes right inside. I mean, they just have this stare that is not like any other animal that I've known. Like they're really trying to see inside you. And... Of course, they have those magnificent voices that if you get to stand by a lion when it's roaring and it makes your bones vibrate, it's really interesting. I often tell people at the zoo when there's a glass-fronted exhibit where the lions are and when they're roaring in the exhibit, I tell kids, put your hand on the window and you can feel the window vibrate from the sound waves. In the sense of a character trait of cowardly, where would you situate that adjective? Well, I guess that the premise is it's so unlikely that a lion would actually be cowardly. Lions can be really cautious. They're not stupid. So if they see something that they've never seen before, they're not going to just go racing in there and like a person might do. They're they're going to investigate carefully and cautiously and make sure that they don't get hurt. I've never met a cowardly lion They can be really aggressive. They can be really scary. So the the zoo here has this enclosure that's glass-fronted, and it also has an indoor holding area that's not accessible to the public where they get brought inside and get fed and get all of their husbandry things taken care of. And in the wintertime in Syracuse, they're inside for a lot of the time. But I had taken my family down there to see the lions and behind the scenes, and I was talking to them about training and showing them some of the things that we do and... And I thought that they had been there before, and one of the lionesses, who was a, one of the more aggressive ones, and she would always do whatever you asked her to, but she was always just a little like, uh, okay, I'm going to do it because you want me to, but I'm just not that happy about it. And she would just snarl, and so she came up to the mesh, and I asked her to sit, and she sat, and she'd, Rawr. My sister, oh my goodness, she said, I've got to go. And she just turned and walked out. Yeah. And she was waiting outside, and I went out, and she said, you did that on purpose. And, no, no, that's just how she is. Are you okay? And she was like, I've never been so scared in my life. And for me, I'm like, oh, I just love everything they do, and so it's just so cool. And then to see somebody have a completely different reaction to something that, you know, I would see all the time that didn't phase me in the least. Yeah. She's not going to like that I told that story, but it's, uh, yeah, that's... That's how they are. Right, yeah. And if she asks you, you did that on purpose, it's like, I can't tell the line what this is. Right. right. So with that experience with your sister, did that remind you of the situation you're in? I mean, other people who don't work with lions (laughs) think, okay, at any moment, this could go wrong. And we're all sort of terrified of lions. And you working with them every day, Do you ever forget that potential danger? Yeah, you never forget. It's really important to never forget that. It's easy for situations to turn, and you can't take anything for granted when you work with wild animals. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous job. People get killed doing it, and you have to always remember that and 
understand that you have built a kind of bond with the animals, but they're not your friend. You're just lucky to have some kind of relationship with them, but it's not friendship. You know, even with your pets, there's a line. They might love you, but they depend on you, and domestication has built up a different way for those kinds of animals to behave that wild animals, even wild animals that live in zoos, that they're still wild. And if you make a mistake, you're going to pay for it. And you could pay for it with your life. But I would argue that the average person doesn't know that. They don't know how dangerous animals can be. And an illustration of that is one day when I was at work, and it was not a very crowded day, and that lion enclosure, the public area of it, the actual glass, one part of it is a door. So in order to get big things in and out of the exhibit, we have to have access to it. So there is this big glass door that, of course, is locked. And there was a young man there, and he had a little kid that was maybe two or three. And the lions are very interested in children. I think they're interested in them because they move fast and they look delicious. In the very beginning, you talk about how the lions stare at you. They go into your soul, and it's part of that sizing you up. It could be. I think part of it is they're just really smart and they want to know things and they know things by looking at them. And But yeah, I've always, when I've seen lions look at children, there has always in my head been an element of that looks soft and squishy and delicious. So one of the lions was right on the other side of this door, laying on the rock, staring at the kid. And this guy was trying to open the door. And I came down the hall and I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I just wanted to see if I could open the door. I said, and then what? Just, I just wanted to see what would happen. I said, what would happen is your child would not be here anymore. And then it would be you. Well, aren't they tame? Nope. And even a tame lion would be happy to eat your kid. And I'm sure glad I remembered to lock that door. That is much more often, in my experience, people's attitude that... If an animal's in a zoo, it's a tame animal, and they don't understand that that's not how it really works. Even if, say, you're with the lion, do you think, well, if the lion's with her, it must be safe with me? Yeah, <laughs> or... yeah well, we don't go in with the lions. Right. But yeah, there's even penguins. I mean, the type of penguin that lives at the zoo, Humboldt penguins, they're mean. <laughs> And they're very aggressive. I have more scars from penguins than any other animal I've ever worked with. If they don't like what you're doing, they bite you, and they bite really hard, and their beaks are serrated, and they can really injure you. But we do go in with them, and we feed them, and we give public talks surrounded by penguins, and you know, and people have this perception of happy feet, and mm, penguins right. are adorable, and you know, so we're we're glad to tell them that penguins are vicious little monsters yeah but then well you're in there yeah why can't I be in here and you know it's just a part of the education that this is you know it's taken years to get this animal used to these particular people and they're not going to act the same kind of like your dog is not the same with everyone than it is with you but on a higher level yes so you're saying that there's no level of tameness that a lion would be safe. 
I would never feel safe with a lion. Uh, there's a guy that you might know of in South Africa, Kevin Richardson, who has a sanctuary for lions. Um, he used to, with his father-in-law, raise lions for canned hunting, and he was not comfortable doing that anymore and stopped doing that, but he had this preserve where he has lions and people can go and see it and there's a video that I actually show in my class of him going in this enclosure with male lions and a reporter and the reporter was terrified you could tell before he went in I mean he was sweating he was so scared and his voice was shaking and they went in anyway and I thought wow that's a really foolish thing to do because of course those lions know they can tell that someone is afraid and they show them what they had given them these big bones which lions they don't share their food they're not nice around food I thought, wow. <laughs> everything about this is just wrong and they're patting the lion and the lion is looking and all of a sudden it jumps up and then if you get a little flash in the background of the video of guys with guns they have people with guns to protect these people that are going and doing things that they shouldn't be doing yeah. he has a different relationship with these lions but i don't think he's safe either and mm -hmm. and there is an interview that i saw with him when he was saying you know if i die from a lion then that's okay with me and I, I realize that that may happen. This is a relationship that breaks every rule in the book. Ever get the feeling you've been surrounded by lions? <laughs> I get it every day. Hello, big boy. Oh. Hello, big boy. I would hate nothing more than to see this place go and the animals in it. It's uh, my life and soul. Not too long ago, I think it was last fall, someone was killed on his property. So he takes his lions out on bushwalks out of their enclosures and just walks around with them. And there was a young reporter there, two women that were in their early 20s, and they had done an interview when they were leaving. And so he, you know, radios his people to let them know there's lions out and Apparently, they did not inform him that these women were not in a safe place. The lioness heard them or saw them. They were about a mile away, and she took off, and he couldn't get her to come back, and she went and killed one of those people. And, you know, this is a lion that he raised from a little baby that he thought he had control of and didn't, because you don't really, to a degree. They yeah. might cooperate with you, but... It's always an accident waiting to happen. Yeah. We always hear the bad stories. It's a great story until yeah. <laughs> something happens. Yeah. And in a way, I don't know if this is tangential, but in fiction writing, if you introduce a gun in the first chapter, like, you know, like a rifle hanging on the wall, and it has to go off in the third or fourth chapter, well, somewhere along the way, something's going to go wrong. Right. You know, we hear these bad stories, but there's so many positive stories out there. Like, you know, you worked with them for 41 years. How can we tell those positive stories? Well, I think that you just can. You can't forget that potential. It's like people with a car wreck. They want to hear about the bad things. And, of course, that man goes in with his lions every single day and probably has for the majority of his life and he's still with us so I'm sure he feels something for these animals that is 
powerful and extraordinary and he tells that story all the time he's written books and he goes on tv and but you just can't forget human beings are so egotistical and all have some narcissism so we think that we are the most powerful one and there's just a danger in that thinking that you can control everything because sometimes you can't yeah and even say Siegfried and Roy who had the show for 40 years and then the last show the show that ended it yeah that situation is almost inevitable to take a large cat out onto a stage with thousands of people and thinking that you can control everything I don't think that's a really smart thing do you think they enjoy the work if you look at them and you know about big cat behavior cats performing in shows like that never look like they're enjoying themselves they're snarling their ears are back their tails are flicking all things you can see in your pet cat when it's mad you can see in cats that are performing in shows I don't think they enjoy it in my opinion of course you can't ask them but if that's your work, you can make educated observations. I don't know if you heard about this in uh, Miami school. Yeah, and the tiger in the cage at the prom. That was terrible. And I saw that footage, and even though they said, oh, the tiger was really calm and relaxed, it was not at all calm and relaxed. There were fireworks, there was noise, and that cat was petrified. It was a horrible thing to do. Yeah, for the cat, because it seemed like the people in that situation were maybe safe. A lot of the concern was for the cat. Yeah, and I think a lot of those students didn't like that. And then they weren't happy either because they knew it was happening because of them. Somebody gave permission for that to happen. It's not like somebody just rolled in there with a tiger in a cage and no one said it was okay. Someone said, sure, go ahead. Yeah, and I heard that it was actually legal in the state of Florida. I guess what makes that legal? Yeah, there's a few states that have pretty lax animal welfare laws. Some of them since that incident in Janesville where that guy let all his big cats go. He owned a lot of them. I don't know how long ago that was, maybe eight years. So he had a a private place in Ohio and he kept all these big cats and he was in a dispute with his wife getting a divorce and he decided to let all his cats out and then he killed himself and his cats were roaming the countryside in Ohio, and he had some bears too, he had some monkeys, but he mostly had lions and tigers and some leopards, and they saved one black leopard, one monkey, and maybe a couple of other smaller things, but mostly everything just got killed. And they had zero animal welfare laws in Ohio. You could own any kind of exotic animal that you wanted with no rules about how it was housed or kept or what you did with it. You could do anything. They have laws now. Texas is another one. There's a very common quote in zoos that there's more tigers in Texas than there are in the wild. In private hands, not zoo tigers that people own in Texas. There's upwards of 3,000 of them. You know, you don't need a tiger. And in Florida, the the rules are notoriously lax, and you would think in many ways it has really hurt them because people get these things, and Florida's weather is very accommodating to a lot of exotic animals, and then they just let them go. Big snakes is a 
perfect example. They're decimating wildlife in the Everglades because it's a perfect habitat for them. And there's these huge snakes that are living there. They have snake roundups. A lot of the snakes are killed. There's a bounty on them. They also do have sales where they, they collect the released pets from the wild and bring them back in and sell them to other people. I don't know how you think that's going to end up, but, you know, and snakes reproduce pretty well in those environments, and they make lots of little babies. So you would think that the laws would be tighter, that people would know more and be smarter about things, but they're really not. And then just generally speaking, are you optimistic in the way that things are going in terms of animal welfare? I guess I would say yes, that I'm generally optimistic. I think that... There's a lot more work to do. There's a lot of work in the wild. You know, the wild is disappearing at a very alarming rate. Animals are disappearing from the wild, lions in particular. 30 years ago, there were more than 200,000 lions in Africa, and now there's 20,000, 20,000, 10% are all that's left after just a few decades. That's very alarming. Orangs in Asia, you know, the everything that's being wiped out their habitat, plant palm oil plantations, and there's no place for them to go. That's very alarming. I think people that do know need to talk about it more so that people understand what is happening. Zoos that are accredited zoos by the Association for Zoos and Aquariums, they have a lot more regulations than regular zoos. Federal regulations for zoos are pretty minimal. But there's not enough accredited zoos, so most people don't know that there are 2,500 licensed zoos in this country. That's a lot. Um, And there's 221 accredited ones. So accredited zoos can lead in a more vocal way about what's important about animals and help people be more aware because I think they do care about animals. People like animals and worry about them and sometimes more than they do about other people. But I think that we need to find a louder voice in order to tap into that. The one question that I think you'd be the perfect person to answer, anytime you hear about a person getting injured with contact with an animal that the animal probably didn't instigate, you always hear about the animal being euthanized. What's the logic with that? Why take it out on the animal? That is a very good question. Sometimes in high-profile things that you hear, the only way to rescue the person is to end the animal. But there certainly have been instances, and it happens more, I think, in the wild than it does in zoos, that if an animal goes after a person and kills it, that they're going to try to find it and kill the animal. I have concerns about that in that, again, it's the arrogance of people. They think they can go wherever they want and... Everything's going to be fine, but when you're hiking in the backcountry and there's wild animals there, it's not too expensive to buy a can of pepper spray that's not going to do any harm to an animal in the long run, but it could save your life. That unfortunate person that was killed by a cougar a couple of weeks ago that was biking in a backcountry with his friend and a very hungry young cougar came after him and ate him, and they found it and killed it. That doesn't make a lot of sense. What makes more sense is to say if you're going into this area, you need to have a way to protect yourself. And I don't mean by killing an animal. I mean by having something that's going to be a deterrent and give you some time to 
get out of that animal's space. Um, it was more common if something happened in a zoo a few decades ago and an animal hurt someone that the thinking was it was always going to hurt someone instead of this person made a mistake. You know, that lion that we were speaking of in South Africa, I, it is my understanding that she was euthanized because she was not safe anymore. I can't imagine how that guy felt about that. It must have been incredibly heartbreaking. I wouldn't have made that same decision. I probably would stop walking the lions in the bush if that's not what you're looking for. You know, I think it's pretty common that animals pay for people's mistakes. It seems like they really don't get second chances. I've always wondered if that's done to make people feel like that situation has closure. I think that that maybe is a nice thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I 100% agree with it. Partly I think people are pretty big on revenge, that we're going to make it pay. It did something wrong and it's going to pay for that. It would be nice to think that it was just closure and you could say you solved a problem. I'm sure you've seen a lot of movies that have animals in them. And are there any particular movies that you saw either when you were young or that, you know, while you were working in the zoo and even now that you've appreciated that animal being in the movie? Um, I would probably say no. You know, knowing a movie like Born Free, which was about lions that had lots of baby lions that were taken from their mothers and was not a good environment for them. Those people that starred in that movie ended up having a lion sanctuary to get lions out of film. So I like cartoon lions. I really like The Lion King. Yeah, when I saw the animated version, I just thought, these are people, they're not animals. Right, right. they behave like people. And, you know, the lions and the mandrills they're not pals in the wild yeah you know the mgm lions and that was an unhappy lion that lion that was snarling so when i see that i don't think oh that's beautiful and i love lions so much i think oh poor lion what was going on for you other than dogs and cats in film i'm not an appreciator of animals in film in the wizard of oz toto's always a real dog in, in theater and movies <laughs> Yeah, I thought of Toto as a dog because Toto was a dog and a very well-trained and accommodating. So, yeah, and on stage, Toto's been a dog. It's not like they dress up some tiny human and have it run around as a dog. I don't know why that is, actually. They probably started out with a really good dog. You know, I used to watch The Wizard of Oz every year as a kid growing up. It would be on TV. But to me, that lion was not a lion. That lion was a man, and I never really thought of it as being a lion just like I thought the scarecrow was a man too and the witch was a woman a really scary woman that gave me nightmares but but a person you know so the whole fantasy realm of it in the movie didn't really work for me if you read the book it's easier to visualize those things as being different than what you see when you see a film with people playing those characters are there any books that you see more of a real understanding of what an animal is like? One of my all-time favorite animal books is the original story of Bambi. If you've never read it, it is nothing at all like the movie. It is a really intense description of deer. There's a particular 
portion of the book where Bambi's father is in rut and it's like this blind red rage that to me it was like oh yeah you definitely <laughs> having seen deer in rut and knowing how they just become blind to anything except breeding yeah that book was really wonderful I loved it and I've thought about it a lot I didn't read it until I was an adult my my whole experience with Bambi was the children's cartoon books but that book is intense and it stuck with me do you think fictional animals can serve an educational purpose to form a realistic relationship with animals I think that there's untold treasures in books I read a lot of dog books even though they're fiction the dogs in them are very dog-like and So I think there's a lot to be learned in that way. I think that Disney children's stories have done a lot of damage in terms of people's perception of animals. You know, it's so anthropomorphized in a way that is not anything close to reality. You know, all the animals frolicking in the forest and loving each other and all of them talking and their eyes are all big and it's just not real and I don't think that it helps people's perceptions of animals. I think in a fiction story, even though it's fiction, it can be real. So I'm a big fan of that. I think everyone should read more. And animals in movies again. Let's say there's a situation where they want to use a live animal, but they'll do it in such a way that there's no people in the scene. How do you feel about that? I would say that's probably better. I really like the CGI things that they're doing now, animatronics and those kinds of things. First, I think that's amazing that you can even do that. (laughs) It's pretty incredible. But yeah, knowing the the behind-the-scenes things and what has to happen to make animals perform in the way that they do, I think that I know too much. Did you see Life of Pi? No. CGI tiger, right? Yeah. I read the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was a real tiger in the book. With all of the technology available now, I think that you could use wild animal footage and put the animal in any kind of background that you want. You don't have to have an actual lion doing that. You know, you don't know much about its life away from the film. I don't see the necessity of it. Yeah, horses in films, we've seen that a lot. Yeah, horses get hurt in films a lot. These dramatic chase scenes, a lot of horses have been injured. I like horses, and I don't think that's cool. Do you think that change away from circuses has influenced the way animals are used in movies. Yeah, there are rules about it now that were not in place before, and I can only imagine that that is beneficial. And I do think public perception has changed about that. That has helped the whole anti-zoo faction. One thing that they don't recognize when they talk about they don't want there to be any zoos is there are lots of zoos, and what do you think that means for the animals that live in them? You know, the one thing that PETA doesn't really talk about a lot, but really my understanding that they believe is that animals are better off dead than being in zoos. And that is, in fact, what it would mean if you closed down all the zoos because there's no place to put those animals and and they wouldn't be able to survive if you did put them where their relatives live. They didn't grow up like that and they don't know what to do in that situation. After the laws changed with circuses did a lot of animals go to zoos some of them did some of them 
I would imagine were euthanized, that there wasn't a space for. Circuses are not going to just keep animals that they can't use. And there's not always a place to put them. And animals that have been in that atmosphere, though you can't just put a bunch of lines together and think everything is going to go well, often they don't like each other. And that ends badly. The same thing for elephants. Ringling, fortunately, handled their elephants a little differently than some of the smaller circuses, and they have a big place in Florida where they keep their elephants. They have bred elephants for years very successfully for their shows, but I think that they're trying to downsize and keeping a bunch of elephants when you're not making any money is elephants are expensive. They eat a lot, so it's important to remember when you talk about those things what the alternative really is. There's a lot of emotion around animals. People feel a lot of things about them. And it's all a balancing act. I'd rather see CGI animals in in movies. I would rather see real animals where they live and the ones that are living where they don't live to be well cared for. And that's what I spent my life doing. Thanks to Brick Arts Media for use of their field equipment, and thank you for listening. Yeah.